0: There's absolutely no one size fits all in this environment. But yeah, it's really about trying to dissect what the player needs and how you can get the best out of them. <laughs>
1: the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and I'll be joined in the line later today by Alex Calder of the Houston Dynamo. Now, before we jump to this week's episode, I want to give you a quick recap of the week that was, starting with the awesome and amazing Thanksgiving. Uh, really nice holiday. It was a little bit strange not having any family or, or really friends around. Uh, so Jess and I basically took the brunt of the cooking and maybe more importantly, the cleaning. My gosh, I am always shocked at how much dishes or how many dishes are created when you bake in volume. And man, I bet if we were not cooking or cleaning for about 10 hours straight that day, I don't know what we were doing. But needless to say, my first crack roasting a turkey came out at the risk of sounding a little over the top. Man, I think it came out awesome. Very, very happy with it. Um, the thing that kept me in check was when we made gravy. Uh, I took this recipe from my friend and he's just a ninja, absolute ninja on the, on the grill. So followed his turkey recipe basically to a T, followed his gravy recipe to a T with the small exception of, he said, put like a half bottle of wine, like white wine in the gravy. I thought, okay, well, what do we have? It was like, it was like a muscat or something like that. So I'm sure it was some sort of Moscato, not the flavor that I was looking for in the gravy. So we made this amazing gravy and then basically dumped it all out. Cause I just wasn't, wasn't feeling it. But other than that, The turkey, the stuffing, the green bean casserole, the mashed potatoes, the pumpkin pie. Uh, I mean, it was just fantastic. And even though it was just the four of us, uh, it was really nice. A really nice meal, really nice day. Got to enjoy some good cooking time, enjoy some good family time. We played some games. And just all in all, a very great Thanksgiving. And you know, again, I think you take time at this time of year to reflect, to think about what you are thankful for. Obviously 2020 was uh, not the most forgiving year for a lot of us, lots and lots of ups and downs, but still looking around, thankful the family's healthy, we're moving in the right direction and all in all, like on the bright side, things could be a lot worse. So great, great Turkey day, uh, training of all of the athletes. I I thought it was going to wrap up. It's just kind of shifted gears because while my NBA guys are, are now gone, A lot of my college athletes are coming back the way it would normally be. I might get them for like two weeks over Christmas break, but with the whole Rona thing, the situation going on at colleges right now, they really don't want these kids coming and going. So essentially what happened was over Thanksgiving break, most of them are now here until sometime in January, first, second week in January. So they're kind of disappointed. They would love to be at school and training with their teammates selfishly, I'm kind of excited because I get them back here. We get to get some good work in and most of them, even our soccer girls kind of do like a split season. So they had a fall season and they're going to go back and have another season in the spring. Obviously softball players, they've got a a spring season as well. So it's good to have them back. Definitely excited as well to get these basketball guys out the door and not in the sense that they're not here because I'm going to miss training them. I'm going to miss hanging out with them and just enjoying them as human beings, but very excited to watch them on the court. So what I thought I would do here is kind of shout out to the guys. And then you will also know which teams you should follow if you want to cheer on our guys. So let's start with the Pacers first, because we actually got two guys there. Ed Sumner spent about six weeks with me. Explosive one. To, I think he's more of a combo guard. He handles the ball, but he can shoot. He's athletic. Like This guy is, I mean, he's a freak. It, he's fun to watch play. So Ed Sumner's a guy definitely to watch out for. Keelan Martin got uh, an official NBA contract two years with the Pacers. Couldn't be happier for him, man. I mean, a, a lot of times people celebrate and they herald these first-round draft picks, and rightfully so, right? Like they earned their spot in the draft. But Keelan is, has earned his way to being a full-time NBA player. I mean, he spent a year overseas in Germany, came back, crushed it in summer league, got a two-way with Minnesota last year, took advantage of that, and then parlayed that into a two-year deal with the Pacers. So couldn't be more excited for Keelan. So the Pacers are a team to watch. The Philadelphia 76ers, Dakota Mathias, same kind of path. He spent a year overseas in Spain, came back, He was on a G-League contract last year. Now he's on a two-way contract with Philly. So really excited for him. I mean, he killed it. He was a G-League all-star last year. This guy can fill it up, shoots like 40% from three and on volume. He'll take eight or nine threes in a game and he's still hitting 40%. So he's a fun guy to watch. Hope to see him get some minutes this year. Tyrell Terry, obviously we've talked about him on the show quite a bit. He will be in Dallas playing for the Mavericks this year. And then my guy, Glenn Robinson, uh, reporting to training camp with Sacramento. And hopefully uh, everything shakes out well for him and he has a successful year as well. So, man, just really excited, really excited. We put in a lot of work this year. Some of these guys have been here with me for five, six months now between Ty, Dakota, Keelan. They've been here a long time. I'm excited to see him on a basketball court again and doing what they love. So. That's the basketball guys. And then the last thing I want to touch on, because one thing I want to make sure I do every week is not just ramble on, but I want to give you either something to think about something that's, that's on my brain that I want to pass on to you. But one thing I'd like you to start thinking about right now is kind of where you're at. I think December is always a good time to start kind of critically reflecting and not critical in a negative way, but looking back in an honest reflection as to what went well in 2020, what could have gone better and taking that honest reflection and starting to game plan for 2021. And hopefully for all of us in a lot of different respects, whether it's physically, mentally, emotionally, career-wise, spiritually, 2021 is going to be a much better year. But I want you to start thinking about that now, like where are you at? And this isn't a time to necessarily beat yourself up, but you know, if you're not in the kind of shape you want to be in, Why is that? And how can you fix it? If your career isn't where you want it to be at right now, what can you do to fix it? How can you start working at it? Because what you can't do is just show up on January 1 and expect things to be different. I know I don't expect that. So that's why I take out a couple days actually leading up to the new year to really dive in and figure out, okay, where am I at? What's working? What's not? And how am I going to continue to evolve in the year to come? So, you know, with that being said here in a minute, I'm going to do a little shameless promo for my, my annual training group. Cause I think if you want to get in great shape, if you want to get your nutrition, your recovery, your mindset back on point, it's something that could help you out. But regardless of whether you join my group, somebody else's group, or you just sit down and, and you write, I hate the term new year's resolution, but you set out kind of a roadmap for 2021. I think if you take the time in December to have that honest reflection, to start figuring out where you want to go and how you're going to get there, then I have no doubt 2021 is going to be your best year ever. All right, that's enough for me. Quick break, and then we're going to jump into this awesome show with my boy, Alex. Hey, friend, Mike Robertson here. And before we jump into this week's episode, I want to talk to you about something real quick. If you're listening to this show, you realize the power of coaches. Whether you're a trainer or coach yourself, or an athlete who has worked with coaches in the past, you know how hard it is to accomplish truly amazing feats on your own. And I'm no different. In fact, I've come to the realization that while 2020 wasn't awful, I'm definitely not where I want to be yet in life. And as such, I'm going to be hiring multiple coaches in 2021 to help get me back on track. But here's the thing. Sometimes you want coaching, but simply can't afford a private coach. After all, I realize whether it's in-person or online, my private coaching program isn't for everybody. But what if I could still help you in more of a group-style program? If this sounds interesting at all, my annual training group could be a perfect fit for you. In this program, we go through four three-month phases of training. Building the engine, leaning season, athletic domination, and stronger. But the cool part of this program is that it's more than just a training program. Every month, you'll not only get a new workout to follow, but we'll also add in monthly challenges where we develop habits with regards to nutrition, recovery, and mindset, to help ensure that next year is your best year ever. Trust me, I know 2020 hasn't always been kind to our habits and our routines, so this portion of the program alone could be worth the price of admission. If you're interested in learning more about the annual training group, head on over to robertsontrainingsystems.com forward slash annual. Again, that's robertsontrainingsystems.com forward slash annual. Or if you have any questions or concerns, or just want to learn more about the program, shoot me an email at mike at robertsontrainingsystems.com. Okay, that's enough from me. Thanks so much for listening, and I'd love the chance to work with you and help make 2021 your best year ever. Alex Calder is the head of sports science with Houston Dynamo competing in the MLS. He is an accredited Level 3 Elite Coach with the ASCA, as well as holding accreditations through the NSCA and CSCCA. Having worked in a variety of sports, he has coached at different levels of competition worldwide for the past decade. Last but not least, Alex has also published several articles in relation to physical preparation and analysis. In this show, Alex and I start by talking about his wide-ranging journey in strength and conditioning. From there, we dive into what he means by degrees of freedom with athletes, the role and application of blood flow restriction training, and his best practices when it comes to bulletproofing the hamstrings of his soccer players. This episode has a lot of great information in it, and I know you're going to love it. But enough for me, let's do this. Alex, man, thanks so much for coming on the show here today. Super excited to have you on. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself?
0: Yeah, awesome. Yeah, um, first off, thanks for having me. I know uh I'm trying to get this done for quite a while now, so I'm, <laughs> I'm actually, yeah, humbled to be here. And I know there's, I've listened to the last couple. I've got some big shoes to fill, but no, nah, yeah, pleasure to be here. As for me, yeah, currently the head of sports science at Houston Dynamo, which is a football club in MLS, soccer club in MLS. Obviously from Australia, but yeah, currently over here doing... My bit, the world of physical performance, which is not a lot, but yeah, that's that's me in a nutshell.
1: <laughs> I love it, man. I love it. So tell me, what led you to the world of physical preparation? How did you get started in all this?
0: You know, <laughs> I'll, I'll be completely honest with you because I, I think it's a little different to how everyone else got into it. But in all honesty, mate, I, I got into physical prep for my own selfish reasons. It sounds horrible when I say like all <laughs> this, but at the time I was still playing and obviously incredibly competitive football player. When I was playing, which was a while ago, but I was always looking for for an advantage. So um, I ended up playing for a club at home, and then I left for a bit. And when I came back and tried to return to that club, they actually binned me at the end of preseason. They they didn't sign me, so I was like spewing. I was trying to look for ways. I said, okay, w- what can I work on that I can do on my own? So I'd had some strength coaches back, obviously in early college days and things like that. So I thought I'm going to go and take a personal training course, go get my ACA level one and all that sort of stuff. So I did it just to train myself Yeah. <laughs> and, and try and and try and get a competitive advantage. And then slowly as time went on, I thought maybe I'm a bit better at this than actually playing. So that's kind of how it led. And, and then, yeah, I guess there is is history from there.
1: I love it. I love it. So talk to me about your career path and give me some insights from, okay, you realize you're not going to play, you get your credential. Like, what does your career path look like? Because obviously you're not from the state, So I'm sure people would love to know, like, how did you get to where you're at now?
0: yeah for me, look, it's uh, probably had maybe a bit of an unorthodox approach, and I was maybe one that was trying to hold on to my playing career for too long, and I'm gay to admit that. But yeah, so obviously growing up in Australia, I grew up in Melbourne, southeast Melbourne, so, Maybe where I was from was not the most glamorous of of suburbs, but at 17, I I got offered a scholarship to come over here and play in the States and I'd never been to the States. So I thought, oh yeah, bloody oath, I'll I'll take it. It's a (laughs) bit of free school and keep playing and with every aspiration to play professional football, which was over ambitious. (laughs) So yeah, came over, did a couple of years of college in North Dakota. And then started interning my sophomore year with a junior ice hockey team, kind of learned ins and outs of not just the S&C side, but sport management as well. And I was 19 at the time and then, yeah, ended up going back home and, and trying to continue playing and signed with a third division club and kept playing. But that was around the time when I went and got my ASCA certifications and continued to do my undergrad online. And again, at the same time, trying to play as much as I could. So <laughs> It was kind of a blend early on. It was it was me coaching in the morning at a private facility, and then in the afternoons training and playing on the weekends and trying to get the best of both worlds. And then around 2014, kind of came to this enlightenment. Like this was year going on year 19 or 20 of playing football. So, I mean, if you saw my touch, you wouldn't believe that. But <laughs> uh, it had it, been playing for quite a long time, and then came to a realization. I was coming off the bench and maybe. You know, not as good as I thought it was. So I thought, look, let's go all in on the coaching side of things. And around that time, I was working with professional ice hockey players, and I'd interned with with AFL strength coaches, and really getting a, a, a taste of the professional world. I was still relatively young. So then I ventured to the states. So I took it, took a gamble. To to be fair, I took a gamble. I just packed a couple of suitcases and bought a one way ticket, and thought, all right, let's give it a crack. I'll come over here, and. I'm the type of guy that doesn't really have a plan B, just kind of go for it. So yeah, yeah came over here, moved to Boston, worked at a private facility there for, for a couple of years, training high school athletes of, of all sports. And then was going to all these conferences, trying to get my name out there a bit. And I'd had at that point, maybe only four or five years of coaching athletes. So it was kind of hard to get a foot in the door. But lucky enough, I, I, I got an internship position at Purdue University, which is in your neck of the woods. Yeah. And yeah, that, that was a really good experience. And then obviously, I shadowed Josh Bonetal during my time there, who's to this day, one of the best practitioners I've ever learned. under. Yes. Un- unbelievable. Really opened my eyes to a lot of the practicality of, of coaching and, and what others would call soft skills and, and leadership skills. and really, yeah, t- to be honest, blew my mind a-, a lot of that stuff. So you think you know everything theoretically, but when you see a guy like him and-, and the application, it's it's sensational. Yes. Then, yeah, lucky for Josh, he helped push me onto a role at the University of Louisville, where I was there only for a short period, but enjoyed my time there, big university, some of the best equipment and, and facilities you'll ever see. Worked under Tina Murray, who's Another sensational leader in the in the field. I've been so lucky <laughs> lucky with some of the some of the mentors I've had, and then yeah, I, I got offered a position at Orlando City as uh, assistant fitness coach at the time under Dave McKay. So went there for a couple seasons, which was had its ups and downs, but overall very very good. Which then led me to jump ship to a Western Conference team in in Houston Dynamo. Now just finished the second season here, and and yeah, that that's it in a nutshell. I think.
1: Man, so was your first taste of the U.S., North Dakota? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, the fact that you came back, I'm shocked by that. <laughs> oh, mate. You, you know, like at the time,
0: there was an Aussie uh, assistant coach and he said to me, uh, North Dakota, it, it's it's like the New York of the Midwest. So I was oh, beautiful, whatever, what? sure, it sounds great. <laughs> yeah, I was, was in a bit of shock, especially when I saw snow for the first time. I was oh, yeah. mate, yeah.
1: Yeah. That's crazy, man. And I'm still shocked to this day that you spent time at Purdue, at Louisville, both within an hour or two drive and we never cross paths. So,
0: Yeah, yeah, it's kind of insane that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's been good. It's a good experience so far to be fair.
1: I love it. I love it. So, let's start with a really basic question. From your perspective as a physical prep coach, what are some of your big rocks? When it comes to getting soccer players ready to compete at the highest level,
0: yeah, that's that's a good one, and and I think it often goes undervalued in soccer or football, whatever you want to call it. But for me, my approach or my my big rocks is just doing the absolute basics and and doing them really really well. And I've been caught early days trying to fluff it up and and do bits and pieces to to match, I guess what the what the traditional culture was around soccer and lifting, but. The more experience I got, and the more things I learned along the way, I just like I've just gone back to basics. And for me, it's just nailing the basics, um, but really executing well and and getting like just great adaptations from for me low hanging fruit, um, yes. which is just yeah basic movement patterns, you know, squatting, deadlifting, basic stuff. So well, I think that for me is my approach in football. And obviously, the, the supplementary and ex- accessory stuff is dependent of you know. Individual variation, but yeah, the, the big rocks, as you say, is for me, it's just low
1: hanging fruit. I love it. I love it. And it's something that when people say stuff like that, or when they hear it from your level, that I think intuitively a lot of people question that immediately. They're like, no, there's got to be something more until they go and they watch somebody like you, or somebody like me, or somebody like Josh, and they're like, wait, no, really? Like, there's they're like squatting and pressing and, and doing the basic things that were taught early on just at a very high level because too often I think people assume that a high level athlete on a on a soccer pitch is the same as a high level athlete in the weight room and they're not necessarily one in the same thing
0: yeah yeah exactly right and that's I guess that's my overall approach too and that that was even mind-blowing going to Purdue and seeing that like some of the some of the, the basketball players that he had at the time were like like my weight of 185 or something they're squatting like 300 pounds I thought geez that's <laughs> That's doing the basics really well. Right. And getting massive adaptations from those guys. So that that was another kind of, you know, reaffirming to see that. And and my approach is similar, yeah, similar in football. But I guess the overarching thing for me is like, especially when it comes to gym work, is I just view that as structural and muscular adaptations. And then on the field is all your functional functional work and there's no exercise in the gym that, you know, you're trying to replicate movements. Everything's done on the pitch, but what you're trying to get in the gym is, is yeah, structural adaptations and neural adaptations for sure. I,
1: I love it. So one thing that I always laugh at is when you hear people say something like, oh, well, soccer players need X, and it assumes that all athletes are equal. And I'll give you some context here. My first year when I worked with the Indy 11, which was, I think, 2014, I had a 19-year-old kid who was an up-and-comer. He was on the U-20 national team, like promising MLS career ahead of him, loved to be in the weight room. And on the flip side, I had a 34-year-old Brazilian guy that had won a World Cup, played at the biggest clubs in Europe, and claimed he'd never lifted a day in his life, right? So you've got these opposing ends of the spectrum. So with that being said, how do you go about training your young athletes differently than maybe some of your older ones. Cause I really feel like soccer is unique in that in that context where you have these broad ranges of athletes.
0: Yeah, of course. Like and that was that was certainly not mind blowing to me, but like i I'd, I'd been exposed to that early on at home, working with the, the pro ice hockey players where you, you get an, an array of different personalities and, and training ages. And then when you then when I was in the collegiate field for the first time, everyone's eighteen or twenty two. So maybe there's a bit more of that Uniform and continuity between what what they need because everyone fits in this developmental phase. But yeah, I had the exact same experience going to Orlando. We had we had my first year there was Kakars last year, so <laughs> talking one of the yeah, this guy was rated one of the best players in the world at one point. And then on the other side of things, we got first year players coming out of college. At Orlando City and seeing Kaka, and I was like, oh my goodness, now you've got one guy, exactly what you're saying, is maybe not super, super experienced in the gym, but one of the most prolific players of all time. Yeah. And then you've got a young player who's yet to make his pro appearance, but has this great foundation of lifting from from the collegiate setting. So this is there is an array of of yeah, of training ages. And I think it's to steal some of Ashley Jones' stuff is I really like this this degrees of freedom. So what I mean by that is some of these older players, I think they've earned a bit of autonomy in, in the gym and, and understanding their body a bit more, whereas some of the younger guys haven't really earned this degrees of freedom yet. So maybe my coaching and leadership approach is a bit more authoritative. Very just basic kind of transformational leadership skills, if you will, but yeah, I, I have the exact same exact same anecdote there with, with Kaka, like we we're in the gym and he was off to the side doing his kind of maintenance work that he's been doing to to, to keep him available and robust enough with a physio on the side of the gym and we had a 22-year-old Brazilian player walk in and try to venture over the corner. I said, nah, mate, you're, you're <laughs> over here.
1: <laughs> right. Uh,
0: you're over here. You, you, you're squatting and deadlifting today. You can't get away with that. You, you've got a long way to go. So. Yeah, I think there's absolutely no one size fits all in this environment. But yeah, it's really about trying to dissect what the player needs and how you can get the best out of them in in that environment. And that's, yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I love that. And I love that term too. I've never heard of degrees of freedom used in that sense. Normally you think of like joint range of motion or something like that. But to hear it used in that sense where like, hey, look, man, if you've been doing this at a high level 10, 15, 20 years, like you know your body pretty well. Like you're going to get a little bit of leeway when you walk in the weight room.
0: Yeah. And that's exactly right. Like even, even to this day, we still have players in their thirties, like with, you know, premier league experience that they'll come in and they'll look at their program and they'll have, oh, let's say a three by five trap art deadlift or something. And I could see, you know, that maybe that they're, they're not tuned in or, or dialed in already and had a big session outside. I said, look, mate, how you feeling? Yeah. A bit tired today. I said, Let, let's do two sets. And there's this, like I said, you give them a bit of autonomy, whereas maybe someone a little younger where you're trying to push the envelope a little bit more, like yep. they don't get that option. But yeah, that that
1: degrees of freedom, I just pinched from Ashley Jones. So that, yeah, no <laughs> credit to me. <laughs> I like that though. So on like a macro level, there are generally some really big differences between your off season and your in-season training. Would you mind sharing your thoughts on programming for both? And maybe how they've changed or evolved over your time in the sport, because what you did probably even two or three years ago probably looks a lot different than how it does now. So how has your approach to in-season and off-season changed maybe over the years?
0: Yeah, that, that's that's a good one. That's a really good one. Obviously, there's there's a thousand ways to skin a cat. But yeah, that's, that's a good one, because when you obviously look at the sport as a whole and Maybe during season, the players are demanded so much from the posterior chain, especially if you're a high present team and you know players are sprinting heaps and things like that. So for me, I've gone back and forth on a lot of things. Like I've tried reverse specificity, where you know I'm working on predominantly anterior chain in the off season and then posterior chain in the in season. I've tried specificity going back and forth, and for me, it, it's so much is dependent on on the cohort and environment. Like the current environment that we're in now is really tricky because you design this off-season program but it's you can't actually make it mandatory for these guys because they're protected by the CBA so and a lot of them would go to private facilities like yourself and maybe do that program or things like this so for me now I'm at a point where I'm designing an off-season program based on where they're coming from from the in-season and what I've learned about that individual in, in particular and try to design it so it's it's almost like dummy proof like there's no excuse that you can't do it, especially given this this COVID environment. Like, there's no excuse you can't do this at home with the with the tools we've given you. And and at this point, if if I haven't explained it well enough that this is what that individual needs, then there's probably bigger problems. But from a I guess buy-in, if that's if that's the buzzword perspective, like I've been given nine months in season to to sell it. These are the exercises and these are some of the things that that individual needs. So by the time we get there, hopefully they're able to continue working on that. But yeah, so it's I guess the overall thing is, is again, just trying to hit some of the big strength stuff and maybe bigger adaptations in the off-season as far as that because now we're not worried about fatigue and, and things like that. We're obviously not prepping for games, so we really try and hammer the neural side of things. But yeah, this off-season is completely unique, so I can't even comment sure. on this one because it's unbelievable. But But yeah, overall, it would be pretty similar to previous years anyways.
1: I like that. And one of the ways that I always try and explain it to people when they ask, well, what's the difference between your off-season and in-season training is I'll always relay it like this. Like in season, the goal is winning games, right? Like you got to prepare during the week and your goal is to win games. So you got to have a high level of readiness, which doesn't always allow you to train at the level you would like, right? Like that's kind of how it works. So one of the ways I always try and relay it to people is like, when it comes to the off season, the goal is to focus on the things that they can't get or that are harder to get during the season, right? Like you can't crush somebody on uh, on a Wednesday or Thursday in season and expect them to play at a high level on Saturday. It doesn't work like that. So what are the things that you can't necessarily pick up in season, like you said, like those neurological strength gains, like those high-end strength gains, maybe hypertrophy? Some of those things are a lot harder to come by in season. So those are the things I'm going to put the biggest emphasis on in the off season, especially, I mean, what is your guys' off season in a lot of cases, eight to 12 weeks at best?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Which actually seems quite long. I think (laughs) it's a lot the premier league and other leagues. It's actually quite long.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's always something you're trying to figure out is what are the things that are going to be most impactful in this period of time, the things that I can't get in season. And then that's going to consist of or be the bulk of my off season program.
0: Yeah, that's it, and and, and not to get – I don't want to get too deep into it, but f- for me, like, I'll always start – and this goes for actually any sport I've, I've ever worked in, but I'll always start in the big grand scheme of things, like as far as, like, a needs analysis, all right, let's analyze the sport as a whole, what players would need to compete at the top level in this sport, and then you research basic match demands and things like this, and then start to hone in and from position to individual to player, and even so – This year, off-season changed because now I've honed in that extra step where, all right, we have a new coach who started this year. It took a while to kind of understand how we wanted to play, but now our staff and our HPM is, is really driving this, but our staff is really clear on how he wants to play so then it's our job to dissect and investigate how the you know, what adaptations we need to give the players the best chance to be able to play that way from the physical side of things, only only from the physical side of things. So then that kind of helps derive our, our testing battery. So then we've set our testing battery already for the twenty twenty one preseason. So now our off season program has actually altered a touch because We've introduced new tests, which we think are fitting for the coach's style of play. So now the off-season program is actually shaped a little bit more towards that to give them the best chance to to test for that, which we think would really paint a good picture of if they're ready to play the way we want to play going into next year, which is a little bit more intricate than what we've done in, in past years or especially what I've done in past years. But I feel like with, with a, a coach's second year in, like – we're able to dive in a little bit deeper and get, I guess, really desired adaptations from each individual, especially position, individual, yes. every, Yeah, what the coach wants of them and, and everything. So that's how this year will be shaped. But yeah.
1: It's so funny that you mentioned this because I was just going to ask you if you've ever had a managerial change that has changed the way you write programs. Because like soccer, basketball, like if you have a different coach or you have a managerial change, a lot of times they make want to keep some of the same players, but play in a totally different style. And so this is what I think is fun about our job. It's like, okay, you've got this athlete and they've got this basic qualities, but how can you change or shift those qualities to make them better fit a style? And that's like, that's what I think keeps this exciting for me is, Hey man, when one of my basketball guys goes and he's normally a three, right? So like kind of a wing and like average build, but they want him to be able to go to a different club and be a four Well, now he's got to add weight. And how do we do that without destroying like his strength to power ratio and things like that or or power to body weight ratio? So I think that's what makes this exciting is, hey, man, like you're taking the same guy and like basically reimagining him, rebuilding him to better fit in the mold of a different manager that will, like you said, help them perform at the highest level.
0: Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right.
1: So not to, to totally steer the ship in another direction, but there are two topics I want to talk to you about that I know you're passionate about that I'm very interested in. The first one is blood flow restriction training or BFR. For the uninitiated people that have no clue what this is, would you mind giving us a brief overview of what BFR is and why you might choose to use it in your training?
0: Yeah. Even to to be upfront, I, I wouldn't call myself an absolute expert in, in the BFR realm, but in, in our cohort, we're applying it, I think, fairly effectively. But yeah, blood flow restriction training is, is essentially just restricting blood flow to to certain limbs. It'll be either the, the upper arm or, or the upper thigh to get accelerated adaptations in, in those areas. So I guess... For, for us, how we use it and all credit on our side goes to the medical, our medical team. We have a sensational medical department and our ATs and physio were using this when I first came to to Houston and I hadn't had much exposure to it before. So I saw that as kind of an uh, opportunity to upskill myself and at the same time also challenge the guys of, okay, if you guys are, are really sold on this this approach, how can we get the most out of it? And, and we've started to to put it in more so our return of play processes, but this year was was I think a really good year to use it because obviously with COVID and our congested schedule, it was you know it was harder than woodpecker lifts. So, <laughs> like you said, you can't crush your guys on a Wednesday and expect them to perform on a on a Saturday. But we were playing every Wednesday, Saturday, so our team lifts were kind of really hard to plug in and and expect adaptations and turnaround in 48 to 72 hours. So for certain guys that we had flagged as as individuals that maybe weren't necessarily missing training, but they were flagged th- because they had some sort of chronic tendinopathy or, or something like this, that we were able to utilize some of the BFR protocols, the 30, 15, 15, 15, for obviously the legs, where you can accelerate some of the some of the strength adaptations and some of the muscular adaptations without causing a lot of DOMS the, the next two days. So our physio's done a great job of of pulling those guys out of the team lifts and 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 utilizing that in different aspects and then so that's only that's only one side of it. The other side of it is obviously the return to play side of things which you have seen that you've seen the presentation we have on Veld. so if you haven't seen that probably jump on and have a look at that but our physio talks a little bit more about how he plugs in the early stages of, of return to of play, which obviously we do in cohesion because he'll look at the team lifts or some of the things I program in the later stages. And same thing, okay, what exercises can we put the BFR on that gives them the best opportunity to succeed in the team lifts or get them there faster? And that's, that's what we're always trying to do as practitioners at this level is minimize time loss from injury. So yes. that obviously plays a role. Now for me, like as a strength coach, background, the BFR will never will never overtake the prime prime movers or, you know, like you said, big rocks or low hanging fruit as far as basic strength and neural adaptations. But there is a time and place for it, and I think especially congested schedule. Like there was there was some great opportunities for us to utilize that and I think we had pretty good success, especially returning to some of the guys. I think we did a good job returning them sooner rather than later from the injury side of things. And then, yeah, getting, the, getting accelerated adaptations, which is, oh, which is sensational
1: at this level. Yeah. Now, and the thing that I think struck me when I was watching that video, because immediately I thought of, you know, look, if you've trained some of these guys, mid-30s that have been playing basically their entire adult life, Sometimes the appeal of going in the weight room and banging out heavy weights doesn't sound that exciting, right? Or they've got legit joint issues, right? They've got some you know, arthritic changes in their hips or in their knees. So sometimes those guys don't want to get more beat up in the gym because they know they got to save it for Saturday. So when you were talking about that, I was like, man, I love that idea of decreasing, like, decreasing the stress on the joint putting more stress on the muscle, right? So you almost get this protective effect and it allows them to train. It allows them to get that training adaptation, like you said, but at the same time, not walking out of the gym feeling beat up, which I think for a lot of these guys in a compressed schedule or older athletes, there's a lot of benefits to that.
0: Yeah, it's massive. It's massive, especially, yeah, like you're saying, the, the, the older group is is a, is a great population of target and program some BFR. But it all comes down to, you know, looking at your cohort exactly like you said, picking out those players. And then even further down, the exercise selection is important too to to, you know, pick which exercises are going to be best and when you're going to do them in the lift, whether you're doing them at the start or at the end. And all our protocols are different and obviously the individual variation is is different. But yeah, I, I think it's there's more and more research coming out with this. So I think For me, in a few years, this will be, especially at the cost of some of these, some of these cuffs are, yeah, completely realistic. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. So I could see most organizations starting to implement this in some form.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I have one more question on this topic before we divert. You said 30, 15, 15, 15. I'm 99% sure I know what you mean by that, but I'm quite sure most of the people listening in do not, and I'm afraid of what they're going to do on their own. If you don't explain what that protocol looks like. <laughs> so could you explain to us what the 30, 15, 15, 15 looks like?
0: Yeah. So all the research, or not all of it, but but most of the research goes around this 30, 15, 15, 15 protocol. So that's, that's a sets and reps scheme. So the idea is you, you put the cuffs on, you pick one exercise, you do 30 reps of that. You rest 30 seconds, then you do 15, rest 30 seconds, 15, rest 15. And the idea of that is to obviously create some sort of pre-fatigue in the beginning, which is, explains the 30 reps, and then 15, 15, 15. Yeah, and, and obviously for me as a, as a strength coach, and especially maybe part of, part of my process is, is relatively old school, I initially looked at this again when I first saw it and thought I would never program 30 or, or never, you know, very, not never, very rarely program that many reps. But again, like I said, it was a challenge for me to upskill. And once I started reading it, I thought, oh, okay, this actually makes sense. And, you know, so, some of the results that our medical team's getting and, and then the research is getting, I was like, it kind of seems like a no-brainer to plug this in at certain, you know, points. But yeah, that's what it is. 30 reps, 30 second rest, 15, rest, 15, rest, 15. But the, the weight you choose, depending whether it's upper body or lower body, is like a very small percentage of sure. what you would normally do. So, for example, if I were to do uh, bicep curls, I'm picking up like 10 or 15 pounds <laughs> to do this <laughs> right. um, because it does feel like 10 times harder at the time.
1: Can't wait. I'm going to get some and just everyday arm curls. Got to <laughs> fill out these sleeves, man. Oh, that's it, yeah. <laughs> so one final topic I want to talk about, and I know we're both passionate about this coming from the soccer space, is hamstring pulls. And I think the last time I checked, I think you're probably more up to date on the research than I am, but even like an average hammy pull is probably going to cost an athlete somewhere between four to eight weeks of playing time, which is significant, right? Even if you're looking at a six, eight, ten month season. Nobody wants to lose one to two months of that. So what are you doing and what are you implementing to work to prevent or maybe more importantly to reduce the likelihood of an athlete pulling their hammy?
0: Yeah, this is um oh geez, I could be here for two hours, mate. <laughs> no, this is look for me I was very, very lucky in I did my masters in, in uh ACU. So ACU have a have a hamstring group which is led by like David Opar and Jack Hickey, which for me are the best guys in the world at this. So I was very, very lucky to learn under these guys. And I've just taken a lot of kind of what they're doing in the, in the clinical environment and, and applying it and putting my own kind of twist on a couple of things. But again, it's, it's for me, for me, it's low hanging fruit, but the main objectives in football players is to just to be long and strong from a posterior standpoint. So, all the research points to uh, long fascicles and, and strong in certain areas. And I think it's important that, that long is included in there because a lot of soccer players traditionally will will isolate the hammies and do a bunch of exercises and get strong in quotations. But how you get there is incredibly important because if you're doing a lot of concentric or, or hamstring curl exercises and things like that, perhaps you can consider yourself strong. But maybe you're actually putting yourself at a disadvantage because your fascicles are, are not long.
1: Long enough, yeah.
0: Exactly. So, again, when when you dissect the sport and look at it and hammies is is the most reoccurring injury in football, then you look at the epidemiology of of, of hamstring injuries in football and most of the time it's, it's late swing phase sprinting, max acceleration from a dead stop or change of direction, which is essentially a dead stop, or... Less commonly, kicking or striking the ball. So, so all of those is trying to demand the the body to get long as fast as possible in yes. the most like ballistic fashion. So, for me, pretty much what, what what I'm doing is is pretty simple. But a lot of eccentric work from both the hip and and knee joint, because what we've seen from different research from Maddie Bourne and, and Ryan Timmins is, you know, the hip extension exercises like your RDLs and that yield a different result in different response as opposed to a knee flexor exercise. So one, you'll get a bit more hypertrophy from the semitendinosus and the other a bit more from the bicep fem. So the overall message is to do both. Yes. But how you plug them in and things like that is is important. But yeah, for me, I've just over time kind of laid out this big exercise selection of progressions and regressions as far as all those go. Because if, if you read the research and it says – Minimal effective dosage for Nordics, which is, you know, tier one evidential, one of the best hamstring protective exercises ever. Eight reps a week is minimal effective dosage if you have a good foundation. But like we're saying in a congested schedule maybe it's not maybe it's not possible because there is a doms effect and and guys with low training age and things like that but yeah i've just laid out this big regress regression that that leads to nordics or that that can still expose them to eccentric loading at the at the you know uh, and long fascicle lengths from both the knee and hip that they go from body weight to weighted and and all the way up and now it's just it's it's not easy, but now it's just a plug and play of where yes. we where we can do them, who can do them, why we do them, and things like that. Yeah, the other kind of part where I've kind of ventured and, and been a bit more experimental with is some of the rapid eccentric isometric work. So mm. I've taken some basic Carl Askeling's work with the with the divers and gliders and stuff and just added a different tempo to it. So rapid eccentric is where you get getting getting to the long portion of the movement and as fast as you can and holding it there for five to six seconds. So just different, yeah, just different exercises, but still with the with the overall intention of getting the same adaptations of being long and strong.
1: Love it. Love it. And you know, one thing that you mentioned, you kind of mentioned the eight reps here. I think when I started programming this stuff, first off, try it first, right? Like most people see a Nordic and they think, oh, that doesn't look bad. You know? And, and so while well, I'm a big believer, like try it before you program it for an athlete. And I just remember the first day I did it, I think I just did like three sets of three or three sets of five, and I was absolutely destroyed. And I, I'd done glued hams for a long period of time, but the Nordic is a special kind of beast, definitely leaves you sore. And so when I started programming those for my athletes like you, I had kind of like a progression that I worked up to with ball leg curls and and, and these other exercises. But by the time we got there, they were shocked that we were only doing two sets of three the first week, they're like, really? And I was like, just wait, you know, m- the goal is to to get an adaptation, right? It's not to destroy people. And right, I think right. that's what a lot of athletes are used to. So yeah, two by three the the first week. And then I think we went to like three by three. At best, I think we were doing three sets of five. Because I was like, look, if you're doing really high quality work, three sets of five is all you're going to need on this.
0: Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And even, even to combat some of the research where it says eight is a minimal effective dosage, sometimes it is only six reps but for me if I'm going to do six nordics only then I'm I'm going to make up maybe four reps of of a prone uh, a double leg slide where it's eccentric only just to get exactly you know a little bit more but I'll I'll plug that in at a different time during the week because you can yes. do that on a two days before a game and, and be completely fine going into it because it's such a low intensity but you do get isolated
1: adaptations <laughs> absolutely man let's dive in and let's do the big question Okay. All right. All right. If you could alter the space-time continuum and give young Alex Calder one piece of advice about training and/or life, what would it be?
0: <laughs> I reckon, hang the boots up early, mate. You know
1: that. Good.
0: <laughs> that would be it. No, in all seriousness, it's. Uh, I think patience and humility are things I've done along the way. But you know, there's there's times where I've obviously got frustrated with. with and being impatient. So that would, that would be something I'd tell myself, yeah, just continue to be patient and and, and keep going. And it's, it's a cutthroat industry and it's, it's, it's not easy to get into, but it does take a lot of work, but uh, it pays off, pays off, mate. Yeah.
1: And I think, I think, like you said, the patience piece is huge. And and the thing that I always try to remind myself, I wish I would have known this when I was younger is like, man, it's, it's the long game, right? Like whatever you think, you know, when you're 20, I mean, even when I was in my 30s, I thought, oh, I've got this figured out. And here I am, I'm 42. Yeah, 42 now. I mean, damn, every day I'm like learning new stuff and I'm like, oh, I wish I would have known this, but also knowing, hey, man, I'm not I'm not hanging it up anytime soon. So the more you learn and the more patient you are, if you're playing the long game, you can be pretty darn successful in this field.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: All right. Okay. Okay. Last but not least, we got our lightning round. So, four fairly short questions. Your answers can be as long or short as you like. Ready?
0: Let's go.
1: All right, here we go. Number one: What's your career highlight so far as a coach?
0: I think for sure working with Kaká was was one of the best ones for me because yeah. you, you grew up watching the guys as a kid and. Again, at home when I was in Melbourne, I was getting up at 3, 4 a.m. to watch the Champions League games and watch Kaká, and then 10 years later, I'm, I'm telling him what to do in, in the gym and certain aspects. I'm like, oh, jeez. But that was probably my career highlight as far as a team goes. Hopefully
1: next year, we make playoffs, and then that'll be it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I like it. I like it. So, I, I got to ask with Kaká, was it just like a physical thing? I mean, was the skill and the touch and everything still there?
0: Yeah, he he obviously wasn't the same player he was, you know, when he was in his twenties. But there was, yeah, there was times in training you watch him in small sided of games. You think, geez, has he how's he gotten out of that? Yeah. Um, only only he could get away with doing that. But yeah, it was it, it was special. It was a special player.
1: Yeah, not near the same level. But we had a guy named Kleberson with the Indy Eleven. He played for Brazil. Played for me Man. Yeah, being United. And yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it's a constant battle to keep him on the pitch. But man. There were just moments where the guy would take one step and he'd just rifle a ball with his left foot. I mean, like 25 yards out and put it on frame. And you're just like, dude, that's special, man. You know, from a guy that's probably 155 pounds. It's like, you just remember moments like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's big song. Yeah. I love it. Okay. Number two, this is kind of selfish, but I know you're in deep on the con ed these days. So what are you learning? What are you excited to learn more about right now?
0: Yeah, you know what? Because of COVID and then there's no conferences to really attend, I've, I've been diving back into the books pretty heavily. So. But I've been diving into a lot of leadership books and, and, and managerial books. And I think, look, I'll, I'll plug one because this is one of the best books. I haven't even finished it yet. And i tell you, it's one of the best books I've actually come across in a long, long time is is Where Others Won't by Cody Royal. Sensational book. It's I think anyone working in sport or wants to work in sport, even coaches and practitioners should read. This is, a like for me, an, an absolutely sensational book. It's, it's really different and, and talks about it's just a myriad of things in regards to leadership and coaching and thinking outside the box. It's, it's, yeah, it's fantastic.
1: Love it. Love it. We'll have to make sure we get that in the show notes. Cause that sounds like something I would like to pick up as well. Oh, most definitely. Number three, obviously you can't go back to Australia, but imagine you're back in Australia right now. What's your go-to coffee? Oh mate, this is a two hour podcast right here. <laughs> Um, <laughs> This, no, it's, this, uh, this is my dream. When we actually can all move freely again, you and I are going to have coffee somewhere. Oh, oh, coffee.
0: Mate, I'm humble enough to to say that I'm a coffee snob. Like I'll admit it, I'm a coffee <laughs> snob. We have, it, when I'm in Melbourne, it's it's the magic. So we have a coffee in Melbourne called called the magic, which Melbourne baristas invented. I, I don't know how long ago, but essentially it's a, it's a double ristretto with equal parts steamed milk. So it's similar to, I guess, a cortado. Yeah. But that- the way they do it, because the ristretto is a touch stronger version of the espresso, is sensational. So Ooh. when I went home last Christmas, I came back in January. I have some coffee espresso machines here. I spent maybe two months trying to
1: make
0: it. it yourself.
1: Yeah, just couldn't do it. But, but that's it, man. That's That's it. I was so spoiled because I went over there twice. And the first time I landed in Sydney and I was like, oh, yeah, I want whatever this drink. And I was shocked because I'm used to Starbucks right? Or whatever local coffee shop. It's done in like two minutes. I bet it took 15 minutes to make this drink, man. And I was like, what is going on? Like, did they forget about my drink? And it comes over and it was the most beautiful cup of coffee. It was like crosshatched, you know, like drizzle. It looked and tasted. It was the best coffee I've ever had in my entire life. Oh, believe it, man. I believe it. Okay. So I'm going to throw a bonus question in here now that I know you're from Melbourne, because that's my favorite Australian city. Number four, you get one meal in Melbourne. Where are you going?
0: Oh, geez. That's a tough one. I, I like veggie bar. Yeah, I don't eat meat. So, there's, there's a joint up there that just makes sensational food and, and very uh, very different. I'd probably go there mm. because there's also cafes next door too. <laughs> so,
1: I'm going there. Yes, yes. No, I'm just having flashbacks and I just remember how much I enjoyed the coffee and the food culture there, you know? Yeah, it's unbelievable. It really is. It really is. Okay, number five. Last but not least, what's next for Alex Calder?
0: Oh, yeah, next for me. I've got, a on, on a personal note, I've got a lot of things going on this off-season, a lot of projects. Got a big paper under review at the minute, which I'm really excited for because it's a it's a GPS-derived paper, but it'll be the first one investigating MLS match play, so I'm super excited for wow, this. To That's cool finally get through if it does but fingers crossed and then on top of that so i am in the process of actually writing a book so probably about six months in still still early edited collection so it's from actual top practitioners not me but yeah yeah trying to put it together it's, it's a football orientated book and yeah we've finalized the chapters and and authors so now we're on the next stage of getting moving with, with the publishing company so fingers
1: that's
0: crossed. awesome that's yeah. awesome
1: with like best case scenario when would that be out
0: we're shooting for january 2022 so yeah we'll see how it goes it's, it's myself and adam chentafanti which is another aussie bloke who's actually here in houston is our head of C for our academy so yeah we kind of conceived this idea and said oh, let's go for it so um bit out of our comfort zone for sure. sure. Uh, But yeah, we're giving it a crack.
1: I love it, man. I love it. Well, I can't wait to check it out. So Alex, my guy, you've been awesome to chat with today. Thank you so much for your time. Where can my listeners find out more about you and everything you have going on?
0: i'm on twitter and instagram really i think that's pretty much it as far as socials and my name is caller uh, underscore zero five so my last name underscore zero five yeah i don't don't throw too much on there if you follow me on instagram you'll just see a bunch of coffee pictures um
1: <laughs> yeah that's all right man that's all right the coffee game There there could be worse things to be serious about than the coffee game yeah absolutely yeah awesome well alex again my friend thanks so much for coming on buddy this was really great thank you mate really appreciate it All right, my friend. That does it for this week's show with Alex. Sincerely hope you enjoyed it. He's a guy that I've really enjoyed learning from over the the last year or so, whether it's learning about hamstring prevention training and reducing those hamstring injuries, blood flow restriction training. I mean, I think, you know, at this point, I am a sponge for information. And so anybody like Alex, who's in the trenches, who's putting in ground level work and trying to figure out what makes our athletes better or what keeps our athletes healthier, is somebody that I want to learn from. So really hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, I got one of two asks for you. As always, number one, if you're not already subscribed to the show, what are you waiting for, my friend? Doesn't matter. Wherever you listen to podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play, even the Amazon store, wherever you go to consume podcasts, go ahead and subscribe there so you know each and every week when a new episode drops. If you are already subscribed, thank you, go one step further, go on to iTunes, give us a rating and a review. Think last time I checked, we were at like 170 ratings, reviews, man, that just makes such a huge impact on how many people this show gets in front of. And it's my goal. It's really kind of my life's mission at this point to help as many trainers, coaches, rehab professionals continue to grow, continue to evolve and just get the absolute most out of their career. So if you would give me a rating and a review, if we can get the show in front of more people, I would truly appreciate it. My friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back soon with our next episode. Take care.